Um, the reading is found on page 871. Revelation chapter 8, the seventh, the seventh seal and the golden censer. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hands. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on heaven. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels, who had the seven trumpets, prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a, hu and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of all the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the, of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. Your spirit would uh, be uh, uh, teaching us your truth and Father would be changing our hearts and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our government uses scare tactics to modify our behaviour. Uh, they do it through TV advertising campaigns. Can you think of any particular TV advertising campaign where the government's using scare tactics to modify our behaviour? What sort of things come to your mind? When the, 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 quit, the quit smoking, yep. Someone at nine o'clock said the carbon tax ads. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the smoking one's a really important one, isn't it? They uh, show a, um, uh, someone's lung, the lung of a cancer victim of someone who smoked and they, uh, they slice it open and you can see all of the, what is it, tar that's uh, inside it and uh, then just for dramatic effect they will uh, uh, show you a glass or a beaker that's half full of the, the, the tar just to let you know what the effect, and the, the, the message is uh, this could be your lung unless you uh, give up smoking. Any other advertising campaigns you can think of? Yes, Gillian? Um, the AIDS campaign years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the Grim, Grim Reaper. Yeah, that's right, pretty scary stuff. And it's saying, you know, your sexual behaviour uh, may lead to this 
for you. So here's a warning about that. Any other ones you can think of? The driving ones, yeah. The you know family uh, driving, you know, um, down the highway, uh, all relaxing. They're on holidays, but dad doesn't take breaks, and in one, what do they call it, micro sleep, and the family is no more. Uh, it's just uh, crumpled uh, steel on the side of the road with flashing lights. And it's to scare us. It's, to, it's not to scare you for the sake of scaring. It's to scare you in order for you to realise the consequences of certain action and where this is going to take you. Do you think it's morally right for the government to use scare tactics to change our behaviour? I think most of us would say, yeah, I mean, so long as what they're saying is true and if the, uh, and if the, the consequences that they're outlining for you are right, then... Uh, it's a good thing to do. In fact, uh, there are um, people get angry when they're not warned of uh, consequences. Uh, in the uh, tobacco industry, uh, there are people that have uh, taken lawsuits against the tobacco companies and uh, they've said to them, you knew that there was a danger and you concealed that information from us. You didn't warn us. And so in the US, uh, there's been a couple of uh, important court cases where damages of billions of dollars have been awarded against uh, those companies. What about evangelism? Is it right for us to say to people that if you don't put your trust in Christ, then you're heading for God's judgment? Uh, is that a right thing for us to do? to use scare tactics to get people to think about Jesus. Uh, well, you know, I mean, the churches in the past have sometimes used scare tactics just to draw people into obeying the church, and that's wrong, isn't it? That, that's wrong. But uh, a lot of evangelism these days uh, is about self-actualisation, about, you know, what could be really, really good for you and your lifestyle. And uh, there's... A, a certain absence of talking about the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. Uh, there is a certain absence in talking about human sin and there's a very definite uh, omission in terms of talking about the judgment of God, uh, which is the necessary um, condition for understanding salvation. Uh, and so it's missing in a lot of a lot of evangelism is just about you know how you can live a cool life uh, with God, but in the Bible the Bible is is full of talk about the judgment of God, and that's certainly no less the case in the book of Revelation that uh, we've been looking at over the last few weeks. Uh, in fact, in, in throughout Revelation. It just keeps on telling us over and over and over again that there is going to be a judgment. Now, uh, some Christians, as I talked about last week, sort of think of Revelation as being just a, a chronological timeline of future events that, that finish up uh, on the day of judgment. Uh, but that's not the only way that you can view Revelation. Because another way of understanding Revelation is that it's not a chronological 
time frame, but rather it keeps on telling us the same story over and over and over again, but using different images uh, in order to emphasise the point. Now, what is the key message? Well, the message that we keep on hearing in the book of Revelation, you'd summarise it to three points. One is that there are Christians who are suffering, and that was certainly the case for the seven churches that uh, Revelation was written to. Uh, The other thing is that uh, there will be a day when God will judge uh, those who are opposed to God and his people. And thirdly, that those who remain faithful through the trials and the difficulties of this life that they will enter into God's eternal rest, uh, into the glories of heaven. So that's a message of revelation that keeps on being retold to us over and over again. Um, Last week in chapters 6 and 7, we saw that message being told using the symbol of uh, the seal, the seven seals on a scroll. Remember that, if you are here last week? Um, In today's passage, from chapter 8 through to chapter 11, uh, the message is told by using the symbolism of what happens when the seventh seal is opened. And when the seventh seal is opened, uh, what is revealed is seven angels, and each of those angels has a trumpet which they blast. And when each trumpet is blasted, certain things happen. So you got the the picture there? Now the context of it um, is is set in verses 1 to 5. If you open up at uh, Revelation chapter 8. In uh, verses 1 to 5, the key point there is that Christians who are suffering are praying. You see it in verse 4, it's where it says, the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angels' hands. And so the, the saints, the set-apart people, the people of God, are praying and we know that what they've been praying for has been relief from the persecution that they're suffering. And so their prayers have gone up to God. Now, in chapter 8, verses 6 through to 13, we read what happened. Now that this seventh seal has been opened, we read what happened um, when, the, when, the first, when the first four of the seven angels blasted their trumpet. So we're looking at the first four angels now. When they blasted their trumpets, terrible things happened in verses 6 through to 13. Uh, The first angel blasts his trumpet and that brings destruction on our planet. Uh, The second uh, blasts his trumpet and and the the sea is ruined and he destroys the creatures of the sea and the ships uh, in the sea. Uh, The third blasts his trumpet and brings death to mankind. And uh, when the fourth angel blasts his trumpet, well, I want us to look at what happens there by reading it. You see it in uh, chapter 8, verse 12. Uh, The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, 
a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark, a third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Now, remember this is apocalyptic literature. It's not something which we're to take literally. There is symbolism in this. And you see that symbolism there in that all these things, you know, these cosmic things are happening and a third of something is changed, a third all of the time, which is saying that it's not the entirety, it's not the majority, it's, it's a third. Um, and some people look at that as something uh, in the future physically going to happen. Others say that this refers to, symbolically referring to events that have happened in history or that will happen in history, we're not actually meant to pinpoint precise events in history and then tag those events with these specific things in the book of Revelation. Um, you know, and then be able to say, well, you know, world history is now up to you know, chapter whatever in Revelation. Um, people do do that, of course. Uh, there are people who will point to things such as the AIDS epidemic or the, um, you, know, the you remember the Boxing Day tsunami when 230,000 people in 14 countries were just wiped off the face of the earth. And, uh, and I, I heard a preacher last week who was saying that, uh, that the wars in Afghanistan and the wars in, the war in, in Iraq uh, now mean that we're up to Revelation chapter 9 in the chronology of God's uh, history. However, the reality is that people in just about any century can point to events in their time and say, well, this is it. Uh, because we're living in a fallen world. We're living in a, a world where wars happen, where disease happens, where earthquakes happen and so on. And uh, that is just life in this fallen world. Uh, instead, these passages are not about the lead-up to God's final day of judgment. These passages are about God's final day of judgment. And what it's saying is this. Ta Do you have nightmares sometimes? Take your worst nightmare... Take your worst, the worst thing that you can think of in terms of an absolute disaster, uh, what would it be, a tsunami or a nuclear holocaust, take whatever it is, the bubonic plague, and multiply it and multiply it and multiply it and multiply it and you'll come somewhere close to understanding what the judgment of God is like. That's what it's saying. Have a look what happens when angel number five blasts his trumpet. I'm going to read this for you. It's in chapter 9, verses 1 to 11, if you would like to follow that. Chapter 9, verse 1. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss and out of the smoke locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or the plant or the tree but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. 
They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts look like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of of iron and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions. And in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek Apollyon. (coughs) That's an amazing picture, isn't it? Um, And if that doesn't scare you, I don't know what would. Uh, Some people, of course, have seen that description of the locusts with breastplates like plates of iron and the sounds of their wings like the thundering of horses and chariots in battle and they've said, aha, Apache attack helicopters. Uh, We are now up to uh, Revelation chapter 9. But, you know, in this picture you see, you know, stars dropping from the sky, opens up a bottomless pit in the earth and out of the smoke comes a plague of locusts. Now, we Aussies know what uh, locust plagues are like. There is nothing that scares wheat farmers more than the prospect of a developing plague of locusts swarming across their crop. They consume, they devour, they are unstoppable. Locusts are a great picture of judgment. Uh, In fact, in the Old Testament... I'm going to get you to to come with me back to the book of Joel for a few moments. The first person to find the page number for Joel, uh, we will all appreciate. If you go to Joel chapter 1, anyone found it yet? 644, thank you very much. So in Joel chapter 1, There's this picture of a plague of locusts in Israel. And, well, let's read in verses 6 and 7, Joel's description. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 6, A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number, It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It's stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. That's what locusts do. And you notice the picture language there, the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness, to really describe how how unstoppable it is. Now, in chapter 2 of Joel, however, this plague, an actual physical plague, is described a little bit more and in such a way that it makes us start to think, well, maybe he's talking about something which is actually a bit bigger 
than the actual plague that was encountered by Israel at that time. And so uh, chapter 2, verse 3 says, Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste, nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses, they gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountain tops like a crackling fire, consuming stubble like a mighty army drawn up for battle. Uh, And then if you go down to verse 10, before them the earth shakes, the sky trembles, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army, his forces are beyond number, and Mighty are those who obey his command. And you can see how you know, a physical plague of locusts could do that, you know, blot out the sun and, and, the, and the, st- the stars at night and so on. But he's using this, this language which is more cosmic because he goes on to say, The day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful. Who can endure it? Now, it's a bit like the image in Revelation chapter 9, isn't it? But multiply it and multiply it and multiply it and you'll get something like Revelation chapter 9. In Revelation chapter 9, the locusts did not eat grass, did they? They did not eat crops, did they? Uh, what did, in Revelation 9, uh, what did the locusts eat? Well, have a look at verse 4. Verses 3 and 4. And out of the smoke locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Um, These locusts, they're not after your, your crop. They're not after your wheat or your maize or your barley. They're after you. They want you. This is a horrific image of judgment. You got the idea? No? Well, in case you haven't got the idea, uh, the sixth angel might make things even clearer for you. Um, Chapter 9, verse 13. Uh, The sixth angel sounded his trumpet and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who'd been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and the riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue and yellow as sulphur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions and out of their mouths came fire, smoke and sulphur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke and sulphur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails for their tails were like snakes, having heads which, with which they in, inflict injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they they repent of their murders, their magic act, their sexual immorality or their thefts. 
Now, the judgment here flows from the river Euphrates. What nation does the Euphrates River flow through? Babylon. Babylon. Flows through Iraq. You can imagine some people saying, yeah, okay, we are now at Revelation chapter 9 in the chronology of God's history. But no, what it's saying, in, the, in Solomon's day, that was the border of, uh, of, of Israel. That was the extent of the promised land and symbolises those who do not know God are being judged. And yet in verses 20 to 21, they are unrepentant. Even in the judgment, they fail to repent. But then our passage today takes a new twist. The seventh angel is different. And we read about him in chapters 10 and 11. Uh, in chapter 10, our author John approaches this seventh angel and in verse 90 he asks for a scroll that the angel is holding and what does the angel tell him to do with the scroll? Have a look in verse 9. He says, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. Now, which prophet in the Old Testament was asked to eat uh, the scroll. Anyone remember? This is a test to see who does not need to come to the Bible in 90 minutes next uh, Friday. <laughs> it's Ezekiel. Ezekiel was told to, uh, to eat uh, the scroll. And this scroll, it's bittersweet, isn't it? You know the gospel's bittersweet. The gospel is the... Uh, the stench of death to some and it's the sweet fragrance of life to others. And so if you share the gospel with people and they hate you for it, well, it's the gospel that they're hating because it tells them that they're sinners and they need to repent. And they might love you for it as well if they see in the gospel the great news of salvation. And what we have here is a picture of um, uh, which re reminds us of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was commissioned to speak God's word to Israel and he was to proclaim judgment, not always a popular topic, and he was to proclaim repentance and salvation, but to a stiff-necked people. And the picture in Revelation 9 is of, some, is of someone remaining faithful, proclaiming the gospel in all of its truth, when to do so evokes opposition, even persecution. But the precedent is there in Ezekiel. And this was exactly what was happening in the seven churches to whom John wrote this letter of Revelation. Um, remember in chapters 2 and 3 that in Ephesus they were described as enduring hardship for God's name. Um, in Smyrna, some of them had actually died for the cause of Christ. In Pergamum, one of their members had been martyred but the rest of the church remained faithful to the gospel and the seventh angel is speaking to them, speaking into that context, into that situation. And then in chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, it speaks of two witnesses and they are described as being olive trees and lampstands. Have a look at uh, chapter 11, verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will 
prophesied for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, in Old Testament passages such as Zechariah chapter 4, olive trees symbolise the word of God. Um, In Revelation chapter 2, a lampstand symbolises a church. Uh, In Deuteronomy chapter 9, the testimony of two witnesses was a valid witness. And so all of these come together in these verses and chapter 11 is therefore a picture of Christian, uh, Christians faithfully witnessing, proclaiming the gospel, uh, suffering and being killed for it. But in verses 11 and 12, rising again to new life. Look at verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Now, we call this book Revelation for a reason. Uh, To reveal means to take something which is a mystery and to disclose that mystery, to make it known. Well, what is the mystery that's being made known? Chapter 10, verse 7. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. The mystery of God will be accomplished. Now, what happens before the seventh angel sounds his trumpet? Well, in verse 15 of chapter 11, the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, but before then, the mystery which is revealed is the mystery that the Christians, that is, the ones who do not fit into this world, that it is the Christians who will survive the day of judgment. It is the Christians who have the seal of God on their foreheads. Uh, It is the Christians who wear the, the white robes that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. It is the Christians who, just like in the days before the Exodus, the judgment of God passes over them because the Lamb has been slain on their behalf. That's the mystery. That is the revelation. One of the greatest oratorios ever written was Handel's Messiah. It's usually on uh, around December. Uh, One of the choral societies here puts it on. What's the best known part of Handel's Messiah? It would have to be the... The Hallelujah Chorus. Where do you think the Hallelujah Chorus comes from? The Hallelujah Chorus comes from this very passage. It is the expression of the great victory that Christ has won and the fact that this horrific judgment passes over those who have been sealed with the blood of the Lamb, who have the seal of God on their foreheads. 
And so in verse 15, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Verse 18, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both great and small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Now, friends, the book of Revelation uh, is written to encourage us, you know, as we stand up for Christ, uh, amongst the uh, the difficulties that uh, we face, particularly people's opposition to Christ, uh, it's written to encourage Christians. It's not written as an evangelistic tract to hand out to non-Christians. But I want to suggest to you that, in many ways, it really ought to shape our evangelism. It ought to, because it tells it straight. One day God will judge the world. And so we need to warn people about that because it will happen. And the fact that there will be a day of judgment is a very good reason for people to turn to Christ. In the year 1741, the great American uh, preacher Jonathan Edwards uh, preached a sermon which he called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And that sermon has been printed and reprinted ever since. Um, A number of years ago, a young man in his 20s named Mark turned up at my doorstep. Mark uh, was not a Christian and he had uh, lived a pretty challenging kind of life. He was actually a drug addict. He'd been in and out of jail and all this sort of business. And a couple of his mates were drug addicts as well. They'd become Christians and they, uh, they gave him a copy of this sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And Mark read it. Uh, and it made sense to him. He thought, yep, God has created this world. And he knew that he'd ignored God all of his life. And he knew that he was heading straight towards God's judgment. Now, he'd been judged by human magistrates. He's the only congregation member I've ever had to go and visit in a prison cell. Um, He knew what the judgment of man was like, but to be judged by the one who created the universe, to be shut out from his presence forever, that scared the living daylights out of Mark which is why he turned up at my doorstep. He wanted to avoid the judgment if he possibly could. He knew he needed forgiveness. Uh, And as I spoke to him about Jesus, who by his death on the cross had been punished in our place, Mark over time trusted in Jesus and began a new life of forgiveness and certain hope. Now, you don't have to be a drug addict to be in that situation. Uh, The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that all of our good deeds are just filthy rags in his sight. A few weeks ago, I I was reading a 
Christian blog, um, blog site, which was all about sharing the gospel and asking the question, why people like you and I don't share the gospel enough. And one person who wrote in said, he said, I'm actually not a Christian. I used to call myself a Christian and I grew up in a church and I led the youth group and I went to Bible studies and so I know what Christians think and believe and, but I'm not a Christian. But what he said resonated with me because he could evaluate us. And he said that, he said, the, the, the reason I reckon that Christians don't share the gospel enough is because deep, deep down, they don't believe in judgment. And that for some people, being a Christian is just being part of the tribe, <laughs> having a group of people that you can connect with and, and so on. But deep, deep down, he said, there's a lot of people who just don't seem to believe that there will one day be a judgment from God. Because he said if you did believe it, you'd be out there warning people about it and helping to save people from it. Now, I think it's far more complex than that. There's a lot of reasons you know, why, we, why we don't share the gospel enough. But it is a point worth considering because if you believed, if you had a child and you believe that smoking kills and your child was about to take up smoking, uh, would you say nothing or would you warn them? If you love people, you warn people. And people say, oh, it's so unloving to tell people about hell. Really. If someone's about to step out into traffic and be killed, and they can't see that, and I don't warn them, then am I being unloving? Of course I'm being unloving. No. If we believe that one day there will be this terrible day of judgment, which is almost indescribable, then if we truly love people, then we want to tell them about it. But not because we want them to be judged but rather because we want to save them from judgment by telling them about the Lord Jesus Christ who by his death on the cross has absorbed that judgment upon himself so that those who believe in him and repent can be sealed with the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, Revelation chapters 8 to 11 friends, in one sense, is really complex. And, you know, we've just sort of touched the surface today. It does warrant your deeper study. <coughs> but in another sense, it's not complex at all. It's saying that there is a day of judgment. Think of your worst nightmare, multiply that a thousand times, and that is what it is like to fall into the hands of an angry God. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, that those who do not know the gospel and do not obey uh, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of his glory forever. That is the future. 
of those who don't trust in Christ. So our responsibility is to actually warn them about that and to tell them of Jesus who has died for their sins that they might enjoy us, enjoy with us that everlasting kingdom that God has now made us a part of. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we do thank you for uh, the warning of future judgment. We pray, Father God, that we would not be those Christians who are simply part of the tribe and enjoy being here because we enjoy being with other people, but uh, rather that we are convicted of the truths of your holiness, of man's sinfulness, of your righteous judgment, but mostly of the salvation that can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father God, to own that for ourselves and help us to share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen.